Lord, our plans are all nothing. Whatever we think we're going to do, Lord, surprise us with something greater than what we've assembled or put together of our own volition. Spirit, come into this room right now into the conversation and teach us how to respect others and how to learn about others so that we can bring them closer to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. You know how this works. You can stop and interrupt at any time. This is interactive. You can ask questions. <clears throat> what are we doing? We're in the middle of a series about other religions. Why are we doing it? Because we found out that as Christians, we're like entirely ignorant of what other people believe. We can't really have a dialogue with anybody else. We don't know what they believe. So tonight, we're focusing on Christian science. And what does Christian science teach? Where have we been? We've done Scientology already. Last week, we did Judaism. And tonight, we're going to go through Christian science as much as we can. For those of you who've missed any of these talks, you know that all of them are podcasts. They're all on the site. They will be soon. By the way, the intent of this, as you know, is so that we can get to know about how to talk to people who believe differently because we're so woefully ignorant of what others believe. Let's be clear. It's not to make fun of other people and their religions. Let's keep that spirit together because I think that Christ would do everything as we're commanded with gentleness and respect. Let's talk about Christian science. Where does it come from? Christian science was founded by a woman. Her name was Mary Baker Eddy. One of the few religions that's ever really took off that has been founded by a woman. This is an important fact. Okay? It's also an American religion. You can see that Mary Baker Eddy lived in the 1800s, founded the religion sometime in, I think, 1880s, around that time. And Christian science has always been mired in some controversy. The reason for it is because it challenged three of the biggest notions that we have in society. It challenged established religion, because right from the start it started to question some things about Christianity. It challenged the medical industry that we have, because it had different views on what illnesses were. And it challenged male-dominated religion right from the start. How did it all start? Mary Baker Eddy had a bad fall on the ice. She claims by her words that this fall on the ice caused her to be mortally wounded. Those were her words. That basically she was going to die from this fall. She spent a few days in a hospital where they handed her a copy of the Bible. She was raised congregationalist and she opened the Bible and started reading about one of the healings of Jesus and decided that she too could heal in this way and she claims that having read that story and discovered the science of healing, she healed herself and got up from this, what otherwise, in her words, was going to lead to her death. And that's the beginning of how she started to study more about the science of healing. So in the end, here's the summary belief. All persons are part of God. God is the only life. God is actually the only reality in Christian science. And that the conscious, what we would think of even as the, the mental realization of God being the only reality is going to eliminate all physical adverse. Just think about that for a moment. God's the only reality, and once we recognize that, everything else that's physical will kind of disappear. That's the basic tenet. We're going to expand on it a little bit, okay? Some people have asked when we do these religion series how many people follow kind of the... There really isn't a number of how many Christian scientists there are because they don't release any statistics, but we know there's about 2,000 congregations in the U.S. and about 1,000 worldwide. Lately, in the second half of the 20, 20th century and into the 21st century, it's been on the decline, but it's still around. Okay? And the reason we're covering it, by the way, is it causes a lot of people confusion when they hear the word Christian science. They think that maybe that's just another denomination of Christianity. So we just want to clarify that a little bit. Let's keep going. 
1875, she published Science and Health. This was the big publication in the Church of Christian Science. And in, in 1883, it was amended to add with keys to the scriptures. What is this book? It's her philosophy on how we can heal. It's actually her, all of her theology. It's a pretty long book. And when she added with keys to the scriptures, she went back and interpreted the scriptures. There's a belief in Christian science that our scriptures have been polluted over time. We don't understand them anymore. The meaning has been lost to Christianity. And the belief in Christian science is Mary Baker Eddy was able to interpret the text of Christianity for the first time since the time of the apostles correctly. That the meaning had been lost for so many years and she discovered the true meaning when she wrote Science and Health and of course when she added with keys to the scriptures. This became one of the primary texts in Christian science. In fact, they really have like two texts that they use. The Bible and Science and Health. Those are the main texts. She's written other writings. There are other writings that she wrote. But this is the main text that they use. And they revere them pretty highly. In fact, they revere them so highly that in their churches, they don't preach. Some of you like to go to that church, you know. In their churches, they don't preach. They just read from the Bible, and they read from science and health. Those are the only authorized pastors in the church. And they actually refer to them as the pastors. Now, they do have some other practices, like on a Wednesday night, they'll have these services that they'll offer testimonials at so people can actually speak. But on a Sunday morning service, the pastors, the official spoken word, is reading. So you can see they have these Wednesday evening testimonial services. People get together on a Wednesday night to tell other people in the room what they have gotten out of Christian science, how it's helped them. One more fact, you might hear of people called Christian science practitioners. Right? Those are people who are trained in Christian science and they're basically healers. They're people who have taken advanced courses in learning how to heal through Christian science. They're practitioners. That's the highest office in the church. So they, I wouldn't say they have really ministers. They have Christian science practitioners. Those are the people that are the highest office in the practice. Okay? What else do we know about them? You guys might know of the Christian Science Monitor. Very well-respected uh, journalistic endeavor. And they have, you might see around the city, Christian Science Reading Rooms. You ever seen a Christian Science Reading Room? Interesting thing about Christian Science, unlike many other groups, including Christianity, they don't have an active desire to go out on the streets and recruit people. They believe that people will find that truth on their own in a number of ways. For example, the Christian Science Monitor doesn't really advocate the religion. It's just a, it's a newspaper, a very well-respected one. Um, Christian Science Reading Rooms, they just hope that you might walk in to a Christian Science Reading Room, sit down and pick up some of the materials and start to read on your own and discover some of these things. So that's kind of a different approach where in a way their missionary activity is through a periodical or a book or a reading room somewhere silent where you might sit down and on your own discover some of the writings of Christian Science. So you can see there's no real emphasis on proselytizing or missionary efforts. All right, let's talk about what they believe. God is the only reality. That was one of the things I started with. What that means to Christian scientists is that matter is an illusion. So the things that we perceive around us in this room are not real. Only God is real. And this is not real. And this leads a lot to their beliefs about healing, which we'll talk about. Here's a quote. The nature of humanity is spiritual and perfect in the image of God. All right, so you can start to see the differences between Christian science and Christianity. And tonight, more than other nights, I'm going to actually point out differences as opposed to just talking about what they believe because 
many times when you encounter somebody, and I was just actually on 4th of July, somebody was at our house and she was telling me about an encounter she had when she was sitting on an airplane next to somebody who was Christian Science, and they were talking about their different beliefs. And she said, what confused me so much was we agreed on just about everything. There was so much agreement in what we believed. It seemed like they were really just another denomination of Christianity. I just want to point out some of the differences because the terminology is sometimes similar. For example, the image of God is terminology we're comfortable with. But look at what it means. The nature of humanity is spiritual and perfect. So Christianity doesn't have that sense that humanity is perfect. In fact, it's just the opposite. We've fallen. We might have been created in that way, but we've fallen. Here's something else. Coming to the right understanding of the singular and all-pervasive reality of God. This is what frees us from error. So they don't really have a concept of sin. Their concept is called error. What is error? It's any time you believe something really that isn't true, that isn't the reality you were supposed to have from the beginning. That's error. So they don't really believe in sin, like you're bad, sin, you've missed the mark, like sin, you violated the holiness of God. It's more of an error because you've bought into the error that this is all real. That's the biggest error you can have. So you can see that coming to the right understanding frees us from error, and it frees us from the consequences of error. What are the consequences? Sickness and death. If you could just start to realize this reality, you would conquer sickness and death. It wouldn't affect you. Their view on the Bible. The Bible is not a literal document. It's a symbolic document. It's designed to direct and guide individuals in spiritual matters. It's intended to be metaphorical, allegorical, I know in this room we've debated, what does it mean to have a literal interpretation of the Bible? They're not even talking about literal like the words. They're just looking at even the words and the stories are more allegorical and metaphorical as opposed to be taken like a story that really happened. Philip? With the um, freeing one from error and its consequences like sickness and death, like, does that mean that they believe that if they come to the right understanding that they won't die? Or that they'll live eternally after they die? Or like... Because this world is not real, the death that we would experience is not really real. So if you could actually get to that point of understanding, it would free you from that consequence entirely. There are places in Christian science where those kind of reasonings, have to, you have to leave them there because, to be fair, there's a lot of contradictory statements. And that may be one of them because you'll see that in practice it's very hard to ask about, well, what happens when a person dies? Did they just never realize the error? Or are we in error that they died? But I'll fairly present what they say and then we'll kind of look, because there are a lot of contradictions. Ben? Kind of on a similar note, I mean, if, if they believe God's the only reality, do they believe that we're God? Yes. There's a yes and a no to that, because remember that the concept that we are, that image of God, we're kind of created in it, and that God is the only reality. So in some way, that must mean that we also are part of God or a creation of God that is like God, being perfect and good, those kinds of things. So that's where it gets a little fuzzy as to what's the distinction. Let me show you a couple others of their beliefs. Let's talk about healing, for example. Healing is often misunderstood in Christian science, by the way, because a lot of people think that Christian science does not believe in any medicine. and That's actually not true in practice. And from my research, it doesn't even look like it's true in the actual tenets of the religion. But let's start with the basic understanding that if you understand the reality of God and the error of materiality, in other words, if you understand that there's nothing really material, that's going to eliminate illness. 
So the problem is that we believe in the illness. We believe that this is the material world. If we could just get over that, we would get over the illness. Success in healing depends on the degree of the believer's spiritual understanding. You could see this can kind of be a little bit of a circle because a lot of people in the church will try through spiritual understanding to overcome their belief in the material and just say you should get better because this isn't real. This illness isn't real. But when the person gets worse and worse and worse and maybe dies, the explanation is always that's because the believer's spiritual understanding wasn't quite mature. So they succumb to the fact that they couldn't get over the error. That kind of puts them in a weird cycle. Do you see that? I mean, if you're not, it's kind of like if you don't have the faith, you're going to die or you're not going to get over the illness. So it can never actually be the belief that's in question. You're questioning the believer. There's a tinge of that that sometimes creeps into Christianity that we have to be careful of. Because we often say to people, and you can see it in the book of Job too, sometimes like, maybe you just don't have the faith, or maybe you're just not doing something right. Maybe that's why this is happening to you. And that's not very biblical. Yeah. Is there any room in the belief system for someone else to help bring you healing? Just thinking of like a child that doesn't have understanding, or like this, what I'm starting to notice, it seems like it's for the elite. Like they only, people that can read, or people that... Like, what about mentally disabled, and, you know? Your second observation is right. It does seem to appeal more to intellectuals, and that has always been part of the hallmark of Christian science in some way. Um, a practitioner can help, and you've often seen parents praying for a child. And the way that we get a glimpse into that in Christian science is over the years, unfortunately, there's been a lot of scandal around cases where the parents refuse to take the child to a physician and a child's died. And then there's been lawsuits over the religious practice of Christian scientists and other beliefs where if they had just prayed harder, they thought, and then it turns out that if you just take them to the hospital, this would have prevented the child from dying. So it seems that the emphasis on the practice is everyone is working to help overcome this reality. Because I guess if you take it to a natural extreme, if nothing's real, then I'm not sure if their situation is real, so maybe you getting over the situation would change the situation. It becomes very, you could spend a lot of time thinking about that thought, in other words. I, that's where I kind of stop because it gets kind of confusing. Yeah? Um, when I learned about this, it was classified as new age, like how, you know, new agers try to like transcend and they believe they can do all these crazy things, same things, everything's illusion. But, like in new age, you just believe that like the spirit's eternal and you're kind of your own God. So for them, like when they pray to heal someone, are they praying to God to heal? that person, like Jesus heal this person, or is it their own techniques, like how New Age is? Like? Yeah, prayer is a very controversial subject too, because what we think of as prayer is appealing to a higher deity to pray. And you're going to see in a moment that their concept of prayer is a little different. It is trying to seek understanding to get over the error of materiality. So that's not exactly like appealing to supernatural healing. Maybe that is more common in Christianity. You're saying like, God, you have all power, heal this person. This is more of trying to get through that break of like this isn't really happening to them and if we could just see that it would go away all right and i'll talk about prayer in a second here's something else to look at christian scientists have carefully documented thousands of cases where people with incurable diseases have been healed through their techniques you know it's interesting that we make a large deal sometimes out of testimonies in christianity that's a big part of what we do but as i've been researching other religions scientology kabbalah christian science you can go on the websites and just listen to the testimonies of other people who have come to all sorts of miraculous results as a base because they followed their religion. And it just causes me a pause for a moment. We should 
talk about that sometime. Like, there are a lot of testimonies out there, and what do we make of that? Is, are all these people deluded? Is God working in other people? We just have to think about that. I'll leave it out there as a comment. I don't want to go into it, but they make, if you talk to people from Christian Science, one of the things they'll bring up is, we have documented testimonies of thousands of people who have been healed or overcome incurable diseases by following the practices of Christian Science. How do you respond to that? Because it seems like in Christianity we do the same thing. We bring up some people, they talk about something, and all of us feel like that must be right. Is our faith rooted entirely in that? Because if somebody else brings up a different thing from a different religion, what do we do? So here are the contributions that Christian science has made that are new. They're unique. They're one of the only religions where like, they're into really reading instead of sermons, as we said. Um, they challenged the literal interpretation of Scripture in the 1800s, which is, you know, there was already some of that going on, but they came right out and said, literal or, I mean, let's not even worry about it. It's just, it's not even a story. It might just be more of a metaphor, an allegory. They went really far into that. Um, you saw that periodicals and reading became their missionaries, and of course, being founded by a woman and a large emphasis on the ordination, if you will, it's not their word, it's our word, of women practitioners. All right, let's read some quotes from them. So it's fair whenever we look at a religion to evaluate them by their own words. We're not here to just poke holes. We're here to lift up their words and hear what they have to say. So here is Mary Baker Eddy's quote. The Bible has been my only authority. I have no other guide, the straight and narrow way of truth. That's her statement. So what I'm going to do for the next couple of pages, I'm just going to read you some quotes from her own writings. I just want to compare these to what we know of biblical Christianity. And there's two problems that come up right away. The two problems are, first, if the Bible really is her only source of authority, there's some problems because we have published records of her lifting whole sections from other books into science and health. That's a little troubling because it means that it can't be the only authority that you used, because obviously you must have liked what somebody said to lift like nine, ten paragraphs in a row and throw them into your book. It's one up. The other thing is, of course, as you'll see in a few moments, that while the doctrines sound similar when they talk about them, they kind of have a different meaning than what we know of. But I'll let you be the judge. Let's go through them. The Bible. Here's their belief on the Bible. Full of hundreds of thousands of textual errors. Its divinity is uncertain. Its inspiration questionable. It is made up of metaphors, allegories, myths, and fables. It cannot be read and interpreted literally. So is that what any of them would say if you asked like, what they believe about the Bible? Or? Well, in Christian science, you have to remember, Mary Baker Eddy's writings are, I mean, she is revered not only as the founder, she's referred to as the mother. She has the highest place of authority. And most of these quotes that you'll see come from Science and Health. A few of them come from her subsequent writings where she clarified some things. So maybe the person who you talk to might not be able to recite this quote, but one of the reasons why I'm using quotes from her is so that if any of you want these to have, I can even give you the sources that they're taken from so that you could say, well, for example, didn't she say this in this page of Science and Health, for example, explain that. Now, most of them would say, yeah, I mean, the Bible, who knows about the historical record of the Bible? I mean, we know that even when we don't talk to Christian scientists. We can talk to anybody. They'll say, oh, that thing's been translated so many times and lost so many times. Who knows what it originally said? That may be the more common answer you get. All right. And notice, some of this even tinges a little bit in what some Christians believe, you know? So not all of this is, is stuff. I mean, remember, 
that whole tradition of the 1880s, 1890s, there was already some, some more liberal thoughts entering into Christianity at the same time. Like, maybe we don't take it literally. But I don't know that it would go as far as, even the most liberal of Christian scholars wouldn't call the Bible a fable, you know. But just to contrast it. God. Somebody asked about the concept of God. God is all of these things interchangeably, by the way. They're ref like they will use these words interchangeably for God. Life, truth, love, principle, mind, substance, intelligence, spirit, mother. Basically, God is impersonal, devoid of personality. Contrasted with the God of both the Old and New Testament, who not only has person, but has a name and gives attributes and constantly refers to himself. And then we find out in a triune understanding of God actually is three persons in one. So the idea that God is impersonal is a little different. Here's some idea about the Trinity since we're talking about that. The theology of three persons in one God, that is a personal trinity or triunity, suggests polytheism rather than one ever-present I am. So clearly Christian science not Trinitarian in their understanding. They think that's polytheistic. Life, truth, and love constitutes a triune person called God. So look at the difference between those two quotes. If you said to somebody, do you believe that God is triune? A Christian scientist might say, yes. Because God is life, truth, and love. But that's different than saying God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A three persons in one concept of God. Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is not God, but is the Son of God. So you might be talking to somebody from Christian science, and they might say Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, in our Christian understanding, the Son of God has a distinct meaning, meaning one essence with the Father. In Christian science, he's just the Son of God, maybe the created of God. Miracles. The sick are not healed merely by declaring there is no sickness, but by knowing there is none. That means that when Jesus was saying to somebody, you're healed, get up, a person had to actually know they were healed. Because remember, in Christian science, you have to know that this isn't real. You have to get that. You have to understand that this is error. You have to get over that. So that means that a lot of the miracles that Jesus did probably didn't happen the way they were written, is the presumption. Atonement. This is what they believe about atonement. The material blood of Jesus was no more effective to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the accursed tree than when it was flowing in his veins. Or, here's another quote, he atoned for the terrible unreality of a supposed existence apart from God. What does that mean in English? What Jesus came to tell us is that there's only one true reality. It's God. Not, he wasn't pointing to himself. He was just trying to show us that there was just one reality. It was God. That's what he was doing. The effectiveness of the crucifixion lies in the practical affection and goodness it demonstrated for mankind. Jesus was so good, he basically died in martyrdom to show how much this was true. That's the best I could synthesize of all the somewhat conflicting statements on the atonement of Christ. Um, so do they believe in a resurrection? And if so, is that his like ultimate, I know I cannot die or whatever? Let's go to that because that's, where it, that's why it gets a little strange. On the death of Christ, his disciples believed Jesus to be dead while he was hiding in the sepulcher while he was still alive. So Jesus wasn't dead, he was just hiding. They don't actually believe he died. I'm not really sure what they do with the whole story of the crucifixion, right? Because what this statement is saying is that they thought he was dead. So, you know, there's always been throughout the centuries what's called the swoon theory, that Jesus fainted on the cross, he didn't really die. 
So who knows? I don't know if that, I didn't read deeply enough to go why they don't believe that he died. But clearly they, they, he didn't. Because here's another quote. Jesus' students saw him after the crucifixion and learned that he had not died. So the answer to your question about resurrection is simple. There was no resurrection because he didn't die. Looking at it this way, the ascension, like what we would think of as the bodily ascension of Christ to heaven after he rose from the dead and spent some time with the disciples teaching, their view is the master would rise again in the spiritual way. So really it's not a bodily ascension. He's going to ascend far above their apprehensions. What it really meant was not a physical ascension like he was going up to heaven. It meant that he just ascended so much above their apprehension because he, would, he was going to disappear in a material sense. He literally, he became so understanding of this materiality is not real and his spiritual understanding had ascended so high he just disappeared. Evil. There is no evil. Evil is an illusion. It has no real basis. Evil is a false belief. God is not its author. The suppositious parent of evil, which is Satan, is also a lie. What happens to the people that are doing bad things? But there is no bad things. There's just error. And error is not like sin in our concept. Error is just you're trapped in this material reality where you don't understand that this isn't real. Remember, their belief is that we are all intrinsically good. It's that wrong belief in the materiality of things that causes all this bad Definition. suffering. It just it reminds me of, of what you said. Uh, it reminds me when I, I took philosophy and there was my teacher and he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in anything. And I asked him, I was like, well, what do you think about people that you know, are in jail or what do you think about people that do bad things? And he was like, well, you know, consider, you know, like an appliance, like a toaster. And if the toaster breaks, then it's no good. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just doesn't work right. So he, like, made the analogy of the toaster into, like, people. Most religions have a sense of what it means to be good and right and moral. I think the better question sometimes would be, like, well, what is the source of that, then? Where do we get that? And they might point to the Bible. They might point to science and health. They might point to the fact that the greatest thing, the greatest ethic, is to get people over this belief that the material is real. They might believe that. And to show them, to free them up from illness and sickness and all the things that happen. Remember, the material doesn't just cause sickness. They say it causes all kinds of destruction, decay, and death. So it might even cause the bad things that are happening. But I don't know if you said to a Christian scientist, does that mean if you just don't believe that person's going to shoot you, for example, that they're not going to shoot you? or that it's not wrong for them to do it because they're not really there. I don't know where that, that's the part where you'd have to really dive in and spend time talking to somebody about that because it seems like you get lost in the contradiction at that point. I mean, to be fair, I think one of the fundamental realities we have is that everything around us seems very real. If it's not real, we would call everything into question. And that's part of the things that Mary Baker Eddy was never really able to articulate to anyone's satisfaction. As critics have looked at Christian sciences that for someone who's untrained in any kind of theology or philosophy, she just wrote a lot of this stuff and borrowed some of it. But whenever she was pressed about some of these things, the statements she would use to respond just didn't respond to the question she was being asked. There were a lot of critics at the time who would write and critique what she was writing about, and she would try to answer them in subsequent writings, and it just never satisfied anybody because it didn't sound like it, that it could answer the question. Let me just give you an idea of how confusing it gets. Here's a thing about sin. The only realities of sin is the awful fact that unrealities seem real. In other words, that you know, the, the not real, 
the material, which is not real, seem real. So that's sin. Erring belief until God strips off their disguise. So basically it sounds like, if I could say that in English, like the only sin is believing that the material is real. That's sin. That's error. That's the problem. If we just get over that, everything else would be solved. We'd realize that we're this all-good, intrinsic, spiritual being. Here's one that I think all of us in Christianity can understand. Christ came to destroy the belief of sin. That's their view. So Christ came to destroy the belief of sin. The reason I can point these out is she said my, my only source is the Bible. So it'd be a pretty weird reading of the Bible to find that Jesus came so that he could destroy the belief of sin. We might say he came to destroy the effects of sin or he had victory over sin, but to tell everybody there is no sin, I actually think that's what like the whole New Testament is trying to drive home. Again, there is no Satan. He is simply another elusive personification. You asked about prayer. Here's some things about prayer. The danger from prayer is that it may lead us into temptation. I just love that statement. I can't even say it with a straight face because I keep thinking of Jesus saying, and when you pray, pray like this, you know, and lead us not into temptation, right? He like told us to pray that, right? In the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Um, so their view is the danger from prayer is that it may lead us into temptation. Here's Mary Baker Eddy on just praying out loud. The mere habit of pleading with the divine mind, which is God, as one pleads with a human being, perpetuates the belief in God as humanly circumscribed, an error which impedes spiritual growth. Some of us might actually agree with that, and I think that's maybe a fair comment. Sometimes we tend to focus on prayer like, you know, like we're trying to like plead with God like he was like human in some way. But the problem with that statement is not that it doesn't fairly criticize what we do sometimes as human beings by wanting to plead so much with God and make him in our own image and make him do what we want him to do. The problem is that God in scripture, Jesus gives us the example that you should plead with me. I mean, he gives us the example of the widow bugging the bejeebers out of the judge and says, pray like that. Bug me. It's okay. I want you to bug me. I'm not saying I'm going to change my mind. But I want you to come to me and continually come to me in prayer to the point that you bug me. So that's where that one kind of goes off the tracks a little bit. Yeah. So the impediment to spiritual growth, is it like admitting that you do have an illness and you need someone else to come and heal you as opposed to like, you know what I mean? I think the sentiment here is if you plead with God to change your circumstance, that's making God subject to you. What you should be doing, she would say, is praying or getting your mind around the idea that this isn't happening, this isn't real, this has no power. So what she's saying is the problem with prayer is that you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on God changing it. When God's already given you the example through Jesus and through other things and through my writings, that you should be changing the fact that you believe in this reality. That's what should be going on here. Yeah. So, like, kind of a situation, like, if somebody, like, shot one of their kids, would they think that their kid died because he wasn't really real? Or that he didn't die and he's somewhere else? Or? I think the closest I could synthesize is that they would believe that if they were, in an ideal sense, they would believe that this isn't real and that they could overcome this physical ailment because they recognize the unreality of the situation and together it doesn't have any effect. 
remember what they're really looking for here is miraculous healing. They're actually looking at like that bullet could make no difference because it's not real. Even if you look like you're shot and you are bleeding right now, if we discover the unreality of the material world, we'll realize that you could be healed miraculously right now. That's how she began. She was done, according to her own testimony, and was left for dead, like she was going to die from this fall, and she got out of bed because she discovered this, I can conquer this kind of thing. Go ahead. Well, everybody's real in the spiritual sense. We all are spiritual in nature. So, I mean, you're real. It's just this material world is not real to us. Anyone else? Yeah. How do they live out the life? Like, if they're wanting to attain to something future, like past death or whatever that question leads us to, what's their reality like? Like, do they want to pursue things? Like, is there still a, a goals and drives and wanting to succeed in life? But what is the reality like? Like, how do they carry that out in the day to day? Well, I, I think it answers the question the same way. Like, if we understood the true spiritual nature of ourselves and God being the only reality, and we could escape from all the suffering, decay, illness, death, those kinds of things don't really affect who we are, then we're moving about our life. And remember, her book was called Science and Health. Right? They were looking for a way to heal. And that's why a lot of people have called this, like, healing kind of religions, because that's really the goal of it all, is to live with, without all these hindrances as possible, because that was the original intent of God when he created people in his image, was in this great perfect state, not bound by all the material. It's hard to understand it, because everything is unreal to them, so but they're trying to prolong life. That contradiction is a fair one, because critics of Christian science pointed out, like, for example, during her lifetime, she lived very well. And she became very wealthy. She had millions of dollars at the turn of the century, which was a lot of money for anybody, out of Christian science. But forgetting aside like all the things that people normally think, like people just create religions to profit from them, the weird part of it was, if it's not real, and if there's nothing material, then why is it so important to have material things? So again, that contradiction is never really answered anywhere. Because it seems like even in her own life, it didn't, it doesn't get lived out very well. Um, oh, by the way, who was asking about salvation? Here's, your, here's part of your answer. Uh, man is God's idea is already saved with an everlasting salvation. So really, salvation is almost like an unnecessary thing. Man was born saved. According to divine law, sin and suffering are not canceled by repentance or pardon. But that's really a critique of the way the Bible looks at it. She's just saying, like, repentance doesn't do anything to cancel sin. Only understanding this isn't real cancels the only sin, which is error. Man is the ultimate of perfection and by no means the medium of imperfection. The spiritual man is that perfect and unfallen likeness, coexistent and co-eternal with God. That sounds a lot like some of those early creeds of the church that made Jesus and God coexistent, co-eternal. Like, so she's putting man on that same level, going back to that image of God. Like, yeah, Monique. I was fairly certain like, that she, this religion came about at the, time, at the time of mesmerism and like she encountered Mesmer and like read his readings and like encountered him and that's how she began to heal herself through and it, through his teachings that she just kind of incorporated it into her Christianity. Yeah, it's fair comment because, you know, we've said this before, we evaluate the founder after we've kind of thrown out some of the thoughts, 
we go back to evaluate the founder of a religion just like people evaluate Jesus all the time and how he lived his life. Let's take a look at how Mary Baker Eddy comes in. You talked about mesmerism. When her third husband, Asa Eddy, died, they were going to do an autopsy, and they concluded that he died of some pulmonary aneurysm, something, something physical. She disputed it and said, no, he was killed by arsenic poisoning that was mentally administered. She accused her students of poisoning him through malicious mesmerism. And that's what got people thinking like, why are you thinking about mesmerism? Because it seemed like she was starting to study these kinds of new age philosophies. She demanded in contravention of her own writings to have an autopsy done to prove that he was poisoned with arsenic that was mentally administered. So let's all try that right now, like, like see if we can get somebody poisoned arsenic. When she had the doctor, she chose a medical doctor to come in, he confirmed her findings that the arsenic was mentally administered, which caused a real weird review of the guy's medical credentials by the Boston Medical Board or whoever it was when they found out he actually didn't have a medical degree and he was running like an underground abortion clinic, you know. <laughs> so he was actually in prison for 10 years for illegally practicing medicine and it was discovered because she tried this weird autopsy. So you can start to see the contradictions come unfold. Like, they don't believe in autopsies. She had an unlicensed physician confirm that it was this arsenic mentally administered. Turns out he wasn't really a doctor. He went to jail for 10 years as a result of it. He probably got the bum end of that deal. Here's this guy, Phineas Quimby. This is somebody she studied with who was also, somebody asked about where do we get the words Christian science. Quimby had already been writing about the science of healing. He called it the science of man, the science of Christ, and he actually used the words Christian science. She studied with Quimby. In fact, she used to teach Quimby's materials. There's actually in existence printed notes with Mary Baker Eddy's handwriting and changes and changes to the in the margins. And when Quimby died, she took over the word Christian Science, and that only then did she publish Science and Health. Um, he used to call it Science of Health. Her book was called Science and Health. And within a couple of years of him dying she basically took a large portion of Quimby's works and put them into science and health. So that's one of the things that critics always point to and say, if it's true that the Bible was your sole and only source, then why were you taking all of Quimby's work, and put, not all, pages from Quimby's work? And there's actually books that have been written where they just drop into two-column format in the middle of the book and show her writings on one side and Quimby's writings on the other. There's a couple other sources she took from. There's at least two others that people suspect from. There's just a question as to the publication dates, but they'll also run two columns showing here's her text, here's the other person's text, so that at least refutes the claim that it was taken from the Bible only or from God revealing it to her. In her own words, she said, there's no warrant in common law and no permission in the gospel for plagiarizing an author's ideas in their words. But apparently that didn't stop her. There's also a lot of contradictions around the story of her falling on the ice and being healed. Remember, she said she fell on the ice and was in a state where she was about to die and then she was healed. Her doctor later wrote like a long affidavit where he refuted that, he ever, that she was ever in any kind of mortal danger. She fell, she had, you know, it was a serious fall, but that she wasn't going to die or anything from the fall. And that came out and was published around the time. So you can see that there's always been two camps. The Christian scientists will always say, we're being persecuted because we attack the medical establishment. We have a woman as our founder 
and because we're taking on Orthodox Christianity and showing that you've misinterpreted the scriptures for so long and here's the truth. The critics would also say, but look at all this plagiarism, look at all these sources that don't make sense, look at the contradictions from the scriptures you claim to interpret, and look at all the things that don't turn out to be true. All right? I talked about the material, how she would bring in material even though she didn't believe in it. One of the things that got Christian science going was for the first 20 years or so, Christian science basically had maybe about 50 followers. And then it just exploded at one time. And the way that happened was she commanded all of her followers to buy the book Science and Health. And then every few months, she would issue a new edition. And then they would have to go back and buy it. One edition that she commanded, she actually sent out a note to everybody in the church saying, I am commanding every one of you to go out and buy the new edition. It has a very important statement that you must read. And you, you're also commanded to sell it to as many people as possible. And they have her note. Like, they, you know, that's in one of the books I was reading, they have the note. And the new edition had one sentence in it that was different. Maybe, I think it was one or two. It was like two lines that were different in the whole book. You know, so this happened, and this is when the church started to take off because there was this commandment to keep buying the books and selling them to as many people as possible, and that's when the church took off. And it took off right around the turn of the century. They went from like almost like 50 followers to almost like 800 congregations within a number of years. Um, people have asked about medicine, and I want to be clear. Christian scientists are allowed to go to a doctor if they want to. It's just that if they really have the ability, they should be able to see that this is not real, but they can go to a doctor if they want to. We know that also because for much of her life, Mary Baker Eddy was prescribed morphine, a comment that the church has repeatedly denied, but there's, again, lots of evidence that shows that she was administered morphine. In fact, statements from her own doctors, and it appears statements not only from her own doctors, but actually from the head of the church at one point uh, made the same statement and her former assistant. So I think we could fairly hold that up and say, look, if she's the person who discovered this whole faith of healing through the science of Christ or whatever it was that they were using, but wasn't able to get over the pain herself in some way, that's fair. I mean, that's not just trying to hold somebody up for ridicule. That's fair to say that's a difficult thing. But we have to weigh that against testimonies of people who believe that they've been cured from all sorts of incurable things, and that's something worth talking about. Okay? What do we make of all this? How do you discuss these things with people? What do we do with them when we talk to people? I think mainly the point is almost everybody I've ever talked to that's encountered people from Christian science has gotten directly into the theology and they've gotten lost because it is contradictory or it sounds very similar unless you really dig into it. I'm not expecting you to take this whole PowerPoint with you and go, wait a minute, what was that? And like look through it and like go like, but didn't you say you can do that if you know it well enough? But I think we're a more effective way to sit down with people and say, tell me about why you believe this. You could take a singular place, like, isn't it true that you believe that Mary Baker Eddy's writings were inspired and the source really comes from the Bible? Somebody might say, yes, but it's been changed so much we can't trust it. Okay, well now you know where you need to spend time. I mean, let's establish that first. We really don't have anything else to talk about. This isn't about winning them over. This is like, hey, maybe we should just study that. Maybe we should both look into that. Because if that's true, then I'm more open to what you're going to tell me is wrong with it. But if we discover that it's actually somewhat trustworthy, that it hasn't been corrupted, that at least we, can, we know what it says and we know why, 
then now let's evaluate those statements against it. But we first have to establish a standard. Many of us walk into a conversation where we're trying to win an argument. To have a conversation, we need to set the table. What's the parameters? What's, what's the given that we have? You know, before we talk about the nature of God, we've got to figure out, well, where would we learn the nature of God? We believe that when we talk about that God is personal, God is real, God wants to be known, we believe that because we read the words of Scripture. And we see it modeled in Jesus. We see it modeled in his interaction with Israel. We see it modeled in the way he spoke with the prophets. That's what we learn from. But if you throw the Bible out, then what are we going to use? Just personal experience? What would we use? So you have to set the table. You have to set the parameters in a discussion like this. And that might be the first parameter you set with somebody who comes from this background. Some of you in this room right now, when I say that, would go, well, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. That's something we need to dig deeper into the foundation of our faith. We have libraries and books and bookstores, and there's hundreds of books written about why it is that we can trust the scriptures, written by everybody from scholars to goofy people in Christianity, but everybody in between. Hopefully you'll pick something a little bit more scholarly, but you can sit down and say, I need to know this. But you could sit down with somebody else and go, why don't we both read this together? Or why don't we both explore it together? You come up with what you think is wrong, and I'll look and see if I can answer it somehow. That's why we're doing this series. It's to strengthen what we, what we know about what others believe. It's also to strengthen what we believe. I'm not trying to do a survey of world religions class. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is figure out if we're ignorant of what other people believe, we can't have conversations with them. If we're now going to be less ignorant but not have conversations with them, then this whole thing is for nothing. Let's, let's close up. And I'm going to leave some time open in prayer for a moment, so I want you to pray with me as we do this. Lord, tonight we, uh, we're thankful that we have just the ability to spend time in a luxury like studying about another religion, another faith. We're thankful that everyone in this room has a place to stay, something to eat, has people that care about them, has access to your word, has access to your love. And so with those luxuries that we have in our own life, Lord, I want to pray right now for the people who don't know you. We take a moment in silence just to pray for all people who don't know you yet, and we dare, Lord, to ask that you would introduce people into our lives that believe in Christian science, just so that we could begin to dialogue with them. Just take this small speck that we did tonight and just turn it into a better understanding of how to have a discussion with somebody else. Lord, let's pray for those people who don't know you. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who also is seeking you or has doubts about who you are, has questions, may we be a community, Lord, that witnesses not only through our testimony, but through study, through our reason, through our actions, through our love. May this be a safe place where we can wrestle with all the doubts and all the struggles, whether it be in real life circumstance or something as heady as theology. And now give us the boldness to go out and enter into discussions with people who don't know you in love, not trying to win over discussions or win over people, but Lord, just to love as you did and enter into sacred conversations with people, pointing them back to you. Pray this in your name. Amen.